Hi there, it's Megan. If you're listening to the podcast on the regular feed today, you may be noticing that this episode is quite a bit longer than usual. That's because it includes the bonus content that we usually make available only to our paying subscribers. Every week, we record a pretty substantial amount of extra stuff that you can only hear if you're part of our listener community on Substack. This week, we thought that stuff was especially good and also relevant enough to the main conversation that we wanted to make it available to everyone. So if you enjoy it and want more of it and you're not yet a paying subscriber, go to a specialplace.substack.com and join for as little as $6 a month. That gets you bonus episodes every week. Plus, you can participate in comment threads, which are really great, by the way. And we're going to be offering open threads so you can talk about whatever you want with all of our smart, loyal, very special listeners. And uh, that's what you get. So we hope you enjoy this extra long, extra special episode. Just remember, there's a special place in hell for women who don't help each other. Welcome to A Special Place in Hell, the podcast where an aging Gen X author and a self-hating millennial activist come together to thoroughly and conclusively solve our culture war problems with our combined wit, wisdom, and most importantly, lived experience. I am the aging Gen X author, Megan Daum, and with me, self-hating millennial, Sarah Hader. Hello, Sarah. Hi, Megan. Lots going on since we were last here, much going on in the news, and uh, most importantly on Substack, because that is the news. It's really the only news source anybody needs. Our Substack, specifically. This Our, podcast is... Yeah. How many Substacks do we have com- combined? I think we have three um, uh, between us. Plus seven? Two. No, that's my kids. Um... <laughs> How many Substacks do your kids have? Each of them have seven Substacks. That's what I'm getting. You don't have a working farm until all your kids are on Substack. That sounds like a great way to monetize them. All hands on deck. Yeah. Yeah. There might be like a farm accident, you know, lose one of them, but that's just the cost of doing business. Yeah. I mean, not, not, not to introduce competition, but, uh, my, uh, over on my Substack, I've, I've introduced a new feature, which is, uh, people sharing their dreams of heterodox podcasters. Mm. It's huge. Sarah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's on mm-hmm. fire. Yeah, I'm drafting up my submission now. Yeah, it's about a dream I've had about you, about me. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That it's please, graphic please, please, and said, don't put it in the comments. Traumatizing. Um, yeah, it was it was time. a night it was a night terror. It was it was it was a sexual night terror. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't have it any other way. The whole thing started because I had a dream about Glenn Lowry. Uh, a couple nights ago. A sexual nightmare? No, it was not sexual at all. It was that I had convinced him to have dinner with me and I got to the restaurant, but I somehow decided to bring my dog to dinner and I, that just ruined everything and they didn't let the dog in the restaurant. So I had to like put the dog back in the car, but the car was parked really far away and I had to like go. And then by the time I got back, all this time had passed and Glenn was just like, thoroughly unimpressed and i was just Mm. i was like what is wrong with me like oh my god megan god what were you thinking uh and that was the end of the dream and i uh as one does i shared it on twitter because you should always share your dreams on twitter and 
so many people were like, oh my God, I had dream about Matt Taibbi. I had dreams about Katie and Jesse. I had dreams about a lot of John McWhorter. <laughs> Not about you yet, but I'm sure you'll get. There. I don't want. I don't want to hear it. I, um, if, uh... So it's very funny. So I introduced. Um, it's. I, I'm calling it for now. Dark horse dreams, just because I like the alliteration. Because um, a lot of people had dreams about Heather Hying and Brett Weinstein of the Dark Horse, Horse podcast. So mm. uh, I put my dream up there for the first installment, and the comments are filled with people's dreams about heterodox podcasters. And uh, I had somebody write in with a couple, so I'm going to feature the dreams. If you if you email me uh, or message me your dream, I will uh, consider posting it as the featured dream uh, that day. Um, otherwise you can share your dream in the comments, but you know, I've, I've been doing a lot of work. I, you know, Sarah, this mm -hmm. I'm putting the work in. So that's my yeah. offering. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but you wrote something on Substack actually. Yes. This week. I did. Um, I, you know, I, I, I made a mistake, I guess, in that I put like a clickbaity title <laughs> which wasn't, I mean, it was technically true. So it wasn't like total clickbait because it was, you know, it was what I was talking about. But I mean, I feel like that that's, that's the way to get clicks, unfortunately. Like every time <laughs> I do like a normal, boring title, people, like I, I noticed that not enough people seem to be reading it. And yeah. there seems to be a, you know, there's a reason everybody does it. So anyway, I did it. And well, um, what was the title? Uh, the title is Why Hate Crime Hoaxes Are Good. Or at least you saw oh. that's the subtitle. So now you should have. It should have been. Um, what do they call that? Uh, in in favor of. It's a genre of piece, right? It's a genre mm. of article. Um, you know, yeah. in favor yeah. of hate crime ho hoaxes. What is that? So uh, yeah, I don't know. You should something have, like you could that. Have, yeah, you could have turned up the volume on that clickbait. I think. Okay, maybe I should have next time. Yeah, someone else needs to write the actual titles for me. I always struggle with those, but <laughs> yeah. So the piece was about. You know, obviously, the hoaxes themselves are not good. That's not actually what I'm saying. I'm saying why they can be good or at least useful in a way. Um, and I start by, I mean, it, this is this is one of those things that's like seems really obvious to me, but I never see it discussed anywhere, which is that it can only be the case that we see, you know, hate crime hoaxes in a society when that society is actually quite tolerant or at the very least intolerant of hate crimes themselves. Yes, you have to get to a certain baseline before the hate crime hoax has any, is going to even, if anyone's going to bother to do it. Right, right, right. You have to have like a base of sympathy among the yeah. population. And, you know, it says it every single time, like a hate, a hate crime hoax pops up and, you know, like the Jesse Smollett, Smollett, is it Smollett or Smollett? Smollett. <laughs> it's Smollett. <laughs> It's okay, Smollett. Smollett. Um, uh, you know, when that came up and he made the news everywhere and everybody was talking about it for a couple of days, even though it was a really fishy story right from the beginning. Oh, my God. Can you it, just I, – I immediately knew that was bullshit yeah, the second it, it, I heard it. It immediately – yeah, it, it, it immediately smelled funny to me. Um, just the details were so strange. Yeah. Like him being out late at night. For Subway, I remember. I remember that sticking. I, I, remember, I remember thinking yeah. somebody well, like news... him does not eat Subway. He just doesn't. He doesn't <laughs> eat Subway. Well, if you're really high, if you're really stoned, but 
Subway? No, no, no. Pizza. You order pizza. You order um, delivery of something, you know, you know, (laughs) Subway, cold sandwich. It was definitely, definitely fishy. I shouldn't say I knew it was bullshit, but I immediately smelled a rat. I will say that. I did too. Yeah, I I did too, for sure. But there's something about the fact that, you know, it it says something good about our society that we immediately were decrying it and condemning and all these things. Um, And it says something about how hateful we find hate crimes, you know? Um, So, you know, the incentives to invent this kind of victimization, they increase as the base of sympathy towards that group increases, you know? So you will see in highly tolerant societies that hate hate crimes, a lot of hoaxes, you know? And if you can almost measure your progress in in terms of, or at least the progress of a specific group in how well that they're, how well they're doing in the overall, um, you know, social order of things by the way in which hate crime hoaxes work, you know? So it, I, I use the example of the antebellum South where there was a popular culture that um, painted black men as these like hyper-sexualized like beasts yeah. who are, you know, trying to rape white women all the time. Um, and meanwhile, white women are, are, ext- you know, the, the holders of, of, um, this this unique kind of virtue and must be protected by society. In that society, uh, when a white woman falsely accused a black man of rape, you know th- he was he was as good as dead. Yeah, you know. And those and in that society, we saw these false accusations happen. We saw these hoaxes happen a lot. And you can we can talk about like the various reasons a, a woman might invent this, but certainly it shows like. The direction of it a little bit. The black man is a was a believable villain in her fiction. In her fiction, um, at that time. Now we kind of have things in reverse. Um, whereas there's there is a believable uh, believable perpetrator, um, and that I mean we know what that guy looks like. It, he's white. He's wearing a MAGA hat. You know that's the person yeah. that or is a Karen the central, or a white or woman, a Karen, right? Or a Karen, like a the central villain of these hoaxes looks the same you know hoax after hoax it looks like the the same kind of person um and i think that that's very telling about who in our collective imaginations or at the very least in the imagination of a certain class of people is the most believable villain um so i think that there's you know there's a lot more that i talk about um on the piece it's not that long but my whole point was just that hoaxes are you know quote unquote good in that they're useful to understand what a society expects to see, you know, not what the society actually has going on, but what they expect to see. So, I mean, it's the sign of, of progress. It's a, the, the existence of, of hoax hate crimes are a sign of that things are changing of a, almost of a healthy society. It's a perverse positive indicator. It's a per- yes, yes, and it's it's actually a sign of like a lag between what our mental model is of the way society is and how it actually is, um, which is to say we need to update it towards you know towards progress. Um, there's a there's a lag in between when we haven't updated our models when we still think that such and such group is extremely oppressed and such and such group group is extremely evil, um, uh, and maybe that changes. But we don't update our models. And it's within that time that these hoaxes and the people mm-hmm. who kind of want to exploit, you know, this lack of understanding and knowledge can come in and take advantage of the situation. Um, so, yeah, I think it's um, 
that's just something it's just a thought I had and I wanted to post because I wanted to reference it in a later Substack post that I'm working on. <laughs> um but anyway, we'll link to it in the show notes. But did you get you a good response or were were people mad at you? Well, some people were mad at me and then out of those who read it they were like, "Oh, this is good." <laughs> yeah, yeah, those, those were the so only people nice. worth listening to. <laughs> Do you think that this is more uh sort of evident in racial context or what about like sexual assault like something yeah, like um absolutely. like the samantha Erdley case that you know the rolling mm-hmm. stone uva rape case sabrina, like, sabrina sabrina sorry excuse me uh yeah. oh I'm, I'm conflating the name of the author of the piece and the a victim whatever but um yeah like in a case like that do you think that that was i mean that was quite a while ago that was like 2014 i think right um, the, the, the rolling stone yeah and so but do you think that that uh was the was a sign i see i don't i don't think that was a sign that we were in a healthy time it was a sign that it was a great time to be opportunistic about this yeah i mean there's i i thought about including that example um in the piece but i think that that one is kind of messy because it also includes you know uh some structural like institutional problems that that are that i like to harp harp about all the time Mm -hmm. um you know the the homogeneity of perspectives in media institutions you know there's a reason that out of all the people that must have had an had like touched that piece that rolling stone article yeah. which was quite lengthy out of all the people who who had a hand in it nobody thought to check nobody thought that these, you know, hey, well, we they felt they couldn't. They, I mean, I'm sure they tried, and I'm sure the journalist said, "No, this is too sensitive for the for the victim." And the fact checker said, "Okay, no, I don't want to." Well, that's push. what I'm saying. Like it's, they, yeah. they, you know, they had these standards, and they decided that, uh, you know, for this piece, different standards needed to be um, utilized in, yeah. in that time. But it was just. It's, the whole thing was outrageous. I remember reading some of the reports afterwards. I think Columbia Journalism Review, right? Like they they had like a whole post mortem yeah, on that whole did. on that whole yes. debate. I remember reading it, and it was just so damning, um, and not just damning of Rolling Stone, but damning of the institution because I think we see this kind of thing uh, all the time, but in less extreme ways. Um, in any case. Yeah, of course. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of rape hoaxes in Pakistan. <laughs> and mm-hmm. there's a, there's a reason they don't need them. <laughs> well, they don't they don't need them, but also like it's it women do not have sympathy in that situation at all. Um, you know, this is right. it, that's a society in which if you say that I've been raped, there's going to be a good amount of people that are, who are going to think that she was she she did ask for it. Um, that it was actually adultery, and they're going to treat her that way. Oh, I um, see. You know, so there's it, it's a completely different society, and in that society, you cannot you cannot have a hoax like something like the Rolling Stone case is uh, like getting getting a story like that to the point that it's published in a major um, you know media outlet is impossible. Like it, it wouldn't happen. It couldn't happen. Real rape crimes are not believed, <laughs> mm-hmm. despite you know mm-hmm. serious documentation. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Sabrina Erdley, sorry, you're right, is the name of the Rolling Stone author. Um, well good. That was a good that was a good post. So well said. Um okay, what else do we have to discuss? So one of the 
articles that really got my attention this week had to do with real estate, my second favorite topic after culture war topics. I would say that real estate is my favorite non-culture war topic. Yes, you mentioned it's yeah. I love love. Why? What do you think? What what about houses are so great? Really? You own a house, don't you? How did, did you just like yeah, love, just, it's, love it's shopping for it, thinking about it, looking at listings? I didn't shop for it. I just moved in one day. <laughs> Wait, it was just there? You just, it was just empty and you just, you just moved in? No, no. My husband already owned the house. Oh. Which was, which is really annoying actually, because I would have liked to have a say in where. Okay. Living, well, but... this, so he is an exception because the what i want to comment on is this piece in the new york times uh about how single women own more homes than single men mm. and uh i have written about this phenomenon many times including in my book uh life would be perfect if i lived in this house which came out in uh, a long time ago 2011 i guess um 2010 um so, yeah, so this has been going on for a long time. There's an ownership gap. Uh, unmarried women are more interested in owning real estate than unmarried men. And there's a thought, there's, there's many theories as to why. But I noticed that when this article was linked, a lot of the commentary was from men who were annoyed that a bigger deal wasn't made out of the scenario in which a woman who is divorced gets the house mm. <laughs> and that that's somehow contributing significantly to mm. this statistic. Um, I can say more about that in a minute, but uh, let's go back to this. Wait a second. So your husband as a single guy owned a home. Yep. Wow. Yeah. yeah. What? That is a catch. So is it? Well, why did he buy? So why did he bother to buy it? I mean, no, it was a good investment. So it was good that he bought it. But don't you want to, you know, it isn't the dream that you buy the house together and, you know. No, my dream was I buy a house by myself. but And then somebody else moves in. But I think a lot of, well, no, because I bought a tiny house, but I'm not. not No, what happens? Nobody ever, no one ever moves in. (laughs) Well, no, my husband did move into it um, eventually, oh, but then we okay. had, but that was just really small and it was my house. It was my little house. So no, I had a thing. And I think a lot of women have this uh, that I know anyway, which is that we wanted to own our own house before we even got involved in the serious relationship because it Why? was like something that couldn't be taken away. Now I know people are going to be listening to this and saying you're in your bubble. This is not reflective of most people and no doubt that's true, but I would like to say that it, even if it is a small phenomenon, it definitely is one. And yeah, I think that women are, if they have the means to buy uh, their own home, I think that they're, they're more, uh, kind of planning for the future and they want safety and security and they don't want to wait around for a partner. It's kind of like, so is it like maybe an having a baby property or is it? Yeah. Yeah. What's it, that? Is it like an investment thing or is it just like no, to live just, in? No, to live in. But doesn't that, um, like if you're, you know, you're a single woman, it's like settling. What's weird about it is that it's, you're setting down roots. Yeah. And it feels like if you're a single woman and you're still, you know, like the, the benefit of being single is that 
you're super mobile, you know, or you can be anyway, oh. in a way that you can't once you start, once you have a partner oh. um, or a serious relationship. Now, suddenly you're like stuck in that same place. So doesn't that take away from, you know, that, that big benefit of being single? You know, one of the uh, ways that I overcame my fear of buying a house was when somebody, a friend of mine who had also bought a house by herself uh, pointed out, you know, it doesn't limit you. Owning the house, it doesn't tie you down. It actually frees you up because you can do a lot of things with it. You can rent it out. You can renovate it. You can sell it. You can live in it. It's actually not, it doesn't mm. tie you down any more than anything else, really. Mm. Mm. Um, now you could Airbnb it, of course. Uh, yeah. There's lots of ways to make passive income. You could have an ADU. Um, you could have, you know, there's, you could turn your garage into an ADU and have passive income that way. So that wasn't even a factor when I bought my first house in 2004, mm. but, uh, no, I really wanted to have my own place, but I I'm all, I've always been obsessed with houses and looking at real estate listings and what they look like inside. I mean, they don't call it shelter porn for nothing. Mm. Uh, it's just mm -hmm. very mm -hmm. exciting. But you obviously don't don't suffer from this affliction. I don't. I don't think I've ever been all that excited or interested in home buying, like home purchase. Like I would think of it as an investment, but then I am just as I'm, I'm just as likely to actually buy stocks it, oh. you know, from that perspective. Yeah, I mean, I, I liked um, what I liked about renting. Um, I mean, you don't like, I don't like the fact that my money's going into something that's just disappearing, right? Yeah, but, the garbage, the gar that would be known as the trash can. Yes. Right, right. But, yes. but I like that, uh, I like the mobility of it. I would like, you know, being able to explore different neighborhoods, you know, move around. Um, yeah. You know, I, I think that would be, if, if I had been single for a very long time, like, I think I would have, would have taken advantage of that and, and moved around and gotten to know different neighborhoods oh. and that that would have been, that would have been very fun for me. Well, I definitely did that. I, I didn't, I, mm -hmm. I was 34 when I bought my house. So I had already lived in New York city in several different places. And then I did this thing when I was 29, I moved to Nebraska. I don't know if you know about this, this little uh, Nebraska chapter in my life. I think you yeah. mentioned it, but I don't know much about <laughs> I know it, it sounds now. like a complete lie. Yeah. I moved to Nebraska when I was, 29 and I lived in a couple of different places there. Like I lived in this, in this little farm out in the country and I lived in town and then I moved to Los Angeles and I, I lived in the, I, I mean, I love to move. I always say I hate to travel, but I love to move. Oh my gosh. I don't really I, that... hate to travel, but I, but uh, I, no, I lived, I definitely lived in all kinds of different places and different sublets and checking out different neighborhoods. And so when I bought my house, I was absolutely sure that that was, where I wanted to buy it. That was the neighborhood I wanted to buy it in. Um, so yeah. You still own it? No, I sold it when I got married. So it was a, it was a little house. It was about, uh, it was not, I don't even think it was 600 square feet, but it was in a really great location. It was on a steep hillside. It was across from a big open field. Um, it mm -hmm. was in Los Angeles and Echo Park up in the hills and, uh, yeah, but it was, it was perfect for one person. And then I met my husband and then he moved in eventually. And it was just like, I'm a very minimalist. I don't like clutter. Mm -hmm. So if you've just, if you've got two people and too much stuff, I start to get very upset because mm -hmm. I don't like, uh, 
I don't like to look around and like see clutter and stuff like that. So we eventually sold it and moved to a bigger house. Were you the kind of person, this is a little bit of unrelated tangent, that decorated your cubicle when you worked at an <laughs> office? Like, no, because I was, no, I was always a temp. And also I always read in like women's magazines and things that you should never personalize your cubicle if you ever want to get promoted. Really? Yes. That's they don't want to see pictures of your kids. Mm. I mean, not that that was a problem for me, but if, but if you're a woman, they don't want to see that, like you care too much about your personal life. Mm. Okay. Interesting. Why? What about you? Oh yeah. I not, not at all. Not like, not at all to the point that you would think that I had just gotten the job yesterday. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I didn't even have organizers that made a lot of sense, you know, not, not, it's, I had a cup with my pens and pencils and mm -hmm. you know one file thingy and then there was a stack of papers and another stack of papers and another stack of papers and that was that was it i didn't have anything else why um, just because you couldn't be bothered or you didn't have time I, I just yeah i never even thought about it and then until somebody said to me that that was weird because at my after at my third year at the same place <laughs> they were all like why why do you have not, you have nothing, you have nothing anywhere. <laughs> Did, and I just, I was, well, I work here. I don't know. I don't know why I should, you know, right. You don't have a little, there. you know, mug cozy and oh, you don't have like, thank, thank God it's and, Friday mug. I had the mug that the, the organization provided all of us yeah. one day because it had like a typo in it or something and they couldn't sell it. Right. So yeah, you had like the prison <laughs> issued Slippers. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And I <laughs> well, I made do with them. When you were in high school, did you decorate your locker, the inside no, of your locker? Not at all. Not did at all. anybody? Did um, not really, because most people didn't really use their lockers. In, yeah, see, in my high school anyway. Because because everybody just had stuff like on screens. Well, you were allowed to have backpacks, so people just <laughs> like um you know, carried their books with them the whole time. You carried all your books around all the time? I had, I think I stopped at my locker like once a day to like switch out. Yeah. Like during lunch, I would go and I would switch the morning and afternoon classes, books, and then I would carry them all the you rest didn't, of the time. You didn't like plan your route to your locker so you would pass like the cute boy that you had a crush on? No. Oh, no. That wasn't a thing? No. That, I mean, that might've been a thing. That wasn't a thing for me. Oh yeah, like everybody's flight path around the school to their locker, that was like such a big deal, I remember. This is totally relevant to single women owning homes though. We're gonna we're gonna circle right back to that. Are we? Are you gonna yes. you're gonna make this make this um, because Yes, because I'm you know really scrambling. the first space that is your own is your locker. <laughs> so your home is really just an extension of your locker. Uh and so Single women, uh, they yearn for the mm. time when they could decorate their locker and walk to it uh, past the boy they had a crush on and think about um, yeah. the, fact well, well they, done. the fact that they have well. their own locker and don't have to share the locker with anybody else. So that's what it is. I think that women want their own space more than people acknowledge. 
And I remember, I definitely had the feeling that I wanted to, before I like gotten, I know, I mean, I'm a total outlier. I'm not even going to pretend that this is reflective of anybody else because I was so old, but I, I, before I got into a serious relationship, I mean, not that I hadn't had serious relationships in the past, but I wanted to have my own house. Like I was obsessed with not finding like a partner, a serious partner until I owned my own house. Like mm. pathologically for a while. Mm. I spent about a year Wh- looking house hunting and I was like, I can't get a boyfriend until I own my own house. Why? I don't know. I, I don't it get, just, that seems, it, it would, seems like the opposite. Should I know, be. but that's why this is interesting because I, it mm-hmm. does seem like the opposite, but I think that there is a certain type of woman who actually does operate with this inverse psychology because I think that I didn't want, I didn't want to have to go into somebody else's house. Like I didn't, I wanted it to be my place and they were going to like, it's my, I'm decorating this the way they have I to want to accommodate you. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Well, see, th- this is, I think I understand though, why, why a lot of people have trouble then, you know, becoming these full people and <laughs> finding a relationship on their, on their own. Yeah. Well, finding yeah. somebody who, who fits into that. Um, like neatly and well. I think it's just so much easier to do when you're yourself not fully formed. Yes. Agreed. Yeah. Yes. And I actually, that's why I'm very much in the camp of, um, for most people do as Sarah says and not as Megan did because, uh, yeah, it is, it is harder. Um, but anyway, this, this piece was significant, uh, for a couple of reasons. So, First of all, the, the tweet, the New York Times tweet for the piece said, single women own and occupy more homes than single men in the U.S., despite earning only about 83 cents for every dollar that men earn, according to a new study. Here's yeah. a look at where the ownership gap is greatest and smallest across the country. Now, why did they have to throw that in, the 83 why, cents they, for every dollar? You just have to throw in Com- some little bit of misinformation. Completely unrelated. Like, just not just unre- and unrelated, but not also not true. Also misleading anyway. Right. Cause it's, cause it's this group of people, single women, like, especially if you're single young women, you don't have this wage gap problem. Right. They have to, um, they absolutely have to throw it in. It's like a catechism. Uh, and, uh, so I thought that it was really interesting the way there were many, many, what appeared to be sort of angry men, uh, on the, on the thread saying, well, it's leaving out the fact that most women get, they get the house and the divorce. And that's why. Um, and, uh, in fact, according to, um, there was an NBC news report, um, business story about this from 2020. And it says, um, that the divorce thing does play a role, but not really to, to that much of an extent. Um, uh, so it, it, it really more has to do with the labor force. I mean, labor force participation rate for women is around 58%. Wow. Yeah. Um, women what outnumber is it for men. What's that? For, what well, is it for men? Right. Exactly. Women outnumber men in the workforce. They hold just, they hold 50.0% of jobs as of December. Now this was, 2019. So who knows? As we know, the pandemic forced uh, all women out of the workforce. Mm -hmm. So this might have changed. But no, I think, um, yeah, before the wage gap is a motherhood penalty, as we all know. And if you are a single childless 
woman, just think that you're going to be more inclined to um, have your act together to buy a house. I think a lot of single men, they don't, they're not really interested in it. Like it actually is a very, at the end of the day, it's a very stereotypical, stereotypically female trait to want to nest, to want to Mm. have your space. It's a, it's a very domestic impulse. So even if you're not in a, you know, quote unquote domestic situation, you have those inclinations. And I think a lot of men just, they want to wait until they have a partner before they buy a house. I mean, I see that all the time anecdotally, mm-hmm. uh, which, you know, can make sense, but they yeah. don't even, um, they just tend to rent forever. And then we, of course, you know, it's a topic for another time. Perhaps there's a mating crisis. And then, so you end up with a lot of men who never buy a house. Or or rent, you know, or move out of their parents' house. Yeah, well, that's um, I wasn't going to go there, but, but yeah, but but yeah, no, I I I'm I'm with the men here. Um, I think that's what I I don't think that I would have bought a home outside of the outside of an investment property. I th- I think if I thought that I was going to make a lot of money by purchasing a home somewhere or a decent amount of money, I would make the leap. Otherwise, I don't think I would. I don't think it ever occur- would occur to me to to nest in this way without a partner. Um, I don't but even think it's the best I, place I, to put your money as an investment. You cannot it? beat it. Oh my God. Real estate. Mm, oh. doesn't it depend. It depends. I mean, you can, well, it, it depends it, where you are, but in the last several years, Oh, I'm kicking myself for places. I, I know buy. a lot of people who lost a lot. Um, and in 2008 and 2009. Yeah. But that was you know, a long like time a specific, ago now. Yeah. 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 But I'm still scarred by by that in particular. And also, I don't know about the rental stuff because I also have heard so many horror stories from people who have rented, you know, uh, to the wrong person and they trashed their place or whatever. Um, I think it's just it feels like another like bit of thing that's that's where I don't know. I, I, I guess I'm 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 uh, just another way that I don't feel like I understand what's going on. Uh, with young women these days, I suppose. Um, <laughs> I, I just wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't buy it. Um, okay. Uh, so there's, they give explanations. Uh, the, so the New York Times article, to their credit, like it, just right from the beginning, they talk about ooh, considering the wage gap, why could this be? Well, because, you know, not all women are lower earners, um, especially true of women under 30 whose earnings meet or exceed that of their male counterparts in 22 U.S. metros and meet or exceed at least 90 percent of men's earning in another 107 um, U.S. metros. So that's that's a lot. Um, and then, um, you know, they, they say that uh, potentially it's possible that that single women spend less for their homes than men's do than men do. Um also, I think this is probably a significant um, difference, which is that they have a longer life expectancy than men. So some portion of single women are widows um, who have retained the home. That oh, they, that's throwing they, you it. Know. So, I, I'm so sure those single it, women in their 80s, those single gals. Yeah, I, I'm sure that, yeah. <laughs> I mean, they technically count as single women, and I'm mm-hmm. sure that that, okay. that that shifts and then, and then what uh, the, uh, the factor that a lot of people were uh, mad about in the replies, which is that in a divorce settlement, women get the women might get the house. So I think all of these all of these little factors probably add up um, into into this one thing. But it, was it the case that 
um, single men were clamoring to own homes, even, you know, prior to this, it feels to me that that's something, you know, uh, a man might have done after he got to a certain age, but that even he would be waiting to get married at the point that he would yeah. purchase a home. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of traditionally it, when he had enough money to purchase a home and acquire a wife and, you yeah. know, you started a family when you had the financial means. But then, of course, that that age gets, you know, pushed further and further up. So yeah. nobody's ever ready. But I think it speaks to the degree to which a lot of women aren't, they aren't waiting around for a man. They're not even counting on the fact that they're going to find a partner. So they're just going to go ahead with their lives. I, mean, I remember having the sense, like, I think like, I'm not going to, I don't want to wait for my life to start. I really want a house. I don't want to have the feeling that I'm waiting for my life to start. Mm, interesting. Um, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I think a lot of women, and it's the same way that some, a lot of women, not a lot, but more than probably ever, will just have a baby by themselves because they don't want to wait for a partner. And maybe they're, they're they know that mm. they're, less but and less likely few, to find one yeah f- fewer women do that for sure though um then buy oh no i'm not saying no no i mean uh, yeah obviously more women buy houses yeah. by themselves than have babies by themselves but it's a parallel kind of impulse mm. perhaps mm. it's a yeah, trending maybe. uh those both of those things are sort of ticking upwards but um yeah i don't know uh they are um or they're not having kids so they have the house instead of a child which is fine by me. Yeah, yeah. So that's the other um, topic of discussion uh, uh, that we uh, that we want to move on to, which is that, um, sadly, um, this is from... Th- so this is stemming from a, a, a tweet by Chris Williamson, but it's actually um, from a meta-analysis. So it was Scott Galloway. Um, was he tweeting a Scott Galloway? No, there's, there was Scott... Yeah, there was him too. There was... Both of them were, were tweeting something similar. So Chris Williamson um, tweeted that 80% of childless women didn't intend to not have kids. A 2010 meta-analysis showed 10% of women are physically uh, unable. 10% actually plan to not have children, which leaves a whopping four in five childless women who didn't plan to be childless. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there was a, a Scott Galloway tweet, which was you know, along the same line, um, that noted that 44% of non-parents between the ages 18 to 49 reported they weren't likely to have children in the future, up 7% from 2018 hashtag population decline. Yeah. So what do you think about that, Megan? Are you... I'm uh, not surprised. Yeah. I think a lot of millennials uh, were sort of they they absorbed the narrative that the end is nigh, mm-hmm. and that it was sort of irresponsible slash uncool to have kids, uh, either because of climate change or late capitalism or just the impossibility of everything. Um, and I think that message just kind of got baked in. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I do. I think that uh, it is completely true, though, when they talk about more and more women are childless, what they don't say, because you're somehow not allowed to say it, is that the vast majority of those women did not intend to be childless. So mm-hmm. 80 percent 
uh, I think it's probably even more than that. So like mm-hmm. I, somebody like me who likes being childless is definitely in the minority. Yeah. Um, and I think that it's, uh, it's hard to measure too, because I think the people who they wanted to have kids and they, they sort of feel bad about it, but they, you, you know, you have to cope, you have to adjust mm-hmm. your mental mm-hmm. framework. So it's really mm-hmm. hard to sit there and say, you know, 20 years later, I'm still devastated by this. I think people can say, well, you know, that's just the way things turned out and it's I'm fine okay and with I'm that. happy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think if, I think if you, you pulled those same women when they were 20, and ask them how many of them intended to have kids or or saw that that's where their life would go i think you would have you know you're you're right a much much higher number that would say that they that that was probably in their life plan or or you know almost certainly in their life plan um and then yeah some 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 degree of it is just cope um and it's i mean we come back to this topic a lot because i think it is it is an important topic i think it's it's really devastating that there are people out there that want to have a child and can't have one. Um, And if there is something that we can do as a society to um, inform, like change, change our norms, you know, in a way that would not, you know, not create this problem um, for the next generation. I think we, we probably should, especially considering the fact that we are, we have, we are going through a population decline, which is extremely scary. Yeah. Now explain why that is. Yeah. So what's wrong I, with what's wrong with having fewer humans? Yeah. Well, there's um, a lot of things wrong with fewer. Well, you and I, uh, y- you you commented on on one of my tweets about this. Um. Uh. So this was. Hold on. Let me. Let me find that. Um. This was. Me quoting Razib Khan's tweet. Which let me let me read it out loud. He said, um, "Trivial to observe, but the child-free lifestyle is conditional on the childed lifestyle. Who is going to drive the economy that supports the retired person and their investments? The reverse is not really true. The optimal for a child-free person is to have only a few of them. Uh, when too many people stop having children, the economy starts to crap out, and there's a deficit of people who can take care of the retirees. Those investments won't be paying out much if they're not worth anything because the whole economy is geriatric. Um, and I you know, quote tweeted the first of those tweets, and I said that it's an obvious point, but it's not intuitively grasped because I think most child-free people really accept their situation as a marginal one. And then I kind of... Uh, I think you meant outlying. I think the problem is you use the word marginal. <laughs> oh, you're right. But I mean, in the sense that it's uh, what you said, that most people recognize that most people want to have kids, but I don't. And that they're not right. That they're not the that they're not the norm. They're not in the majority. They're, that they're not yeah. the norm. Yeah. But those that are pushing it for the norm, pushing it to be the norm, in my opinion, are you know, like huge morons. And that's what I said. And that's what I call them um, <laughs> who don't understand long-term implications of a shrinking population, which is really, really bad. Um, now it's hard to know, given the, given the way that technology proceeds, which is in a way that's hard to predict um, what a shrinking population necessarily means um, for, you know, the nation and for, for society. It is, conceivable that we can have a shrinking population, um, uh, you know, declining year after year, and that technological improvements have made it so that 
it's still a, a happy, healthy society that we're still doing well. Um, having said that, it certainly becomes more challenging. I mean, and it's contingent on that kind of innovation and growth to support this older population and this smaller and perhaps con- continuing to shrink population. And if you don't have those innovations, um, then we might be looking at a very uh, disturbing trend. Um, and I don't see this, you know, I don't see too many people talking about this or concerned about this. There are some of my, some circles that I have where people are just always so concerned about this and talking about this, but um, the, the, the vast majority of the you know intel- intelligentsia, the media sphere, they don't seem to be you know hair on fire, yelling about this, but it's certainly a problem, you know, and and it bodes, you know, negatively for the future in all likelihood. Like not again, we don't know. Again, it's hard to predict where things will go, but more often than not, when you see this kind of population dis- decline, you also see an economic decline. You know, not an economic boom. Mm-hmm. Um, you see, you see a decline, and that means everybody has a worse standard of living year after year after year after year. Um, and something has really changed in our society um, more recently. I think the point at which it might have changed was the publication of the book "The Population Bomb" by Paul Ehrlich in 1968. Right, and it's you know it's it's really interesting that when I talk about um, the fact that a population decline might be a really bad thing. Um, people just just seem to be, look, they look at me as if I'm a Martian. You know, so, <laughs> there, there's a percentage of people who just haven't, they just haven't gotten the memo that the population bomb, like this book, um, which should we give a background on the book a little bit? Yeah, if you can. Yeah. Um, so this, this book uh, was, um, it set, it set the tone for what became this, you know, antinatalism, this doom, you know, humanity is over. Um, and it, and it did that by um, promising that hundreds of millions of people are going to starve to death. Um, that, that we're about to run out of resources. Mm-hmm. The earth cannot sustain us and it cannot produce the food that we need to, that, that we need to have to survive. So um, we're about to have like, outrageous, you know, mass famines. Um, and, and there's nothing really we can do to prevent this, um, increase in the world death rate. And it was just very, um, the, the tone was very extreme. And this book had an immense impact, um, on, uh, you know, uh, on, on the, the, intelligentsia i suppose but on the way that we thought about what was happening um because it was so alarmist in its uh proclamations now um the guy who wrote it he and uh his his wife who were who who was also like very much on board with this perspective um they did a lot of like media about it and they they had you know all these these grand pronunciations about what's about to happen and we're just going to we're going to starve tons and tons of people are going to starve um and it's interesting that you know he says that his scenarios were possibilities not predictions like that's that's what he said except in a lot of his language was, was definitely alarmist. Like for example, here's a quote from his book. Uh, most, uh, uh, well, actually, no, this is from a magazine article that, that, that 
magazine interview that he gave in 1969. He says, most of the people who are going to die in the greatest cataclysm in the history of man have already been born. Okay, this is 1969. Sometime in the next 15 years, the end will come, he told CBS News um, in 1970, you know. And by the end, I mean an utter breakdown of the capacity of the planet to support humanity. Yeah. And this, so there was just alarm that swept just Everyone was taken by this and, uh, you know, uh, leaders and politicians were alarmed by this and governmental organizations, non-governmental organizations, international bodies wanted to do something about this. And so we saw, you know, a wave of of programs to reduce fertility rates in, in poor parts of the world that were truly, truly horrific. Um, I'm reading from an article about this in the Smithsonian uh, magazine. Um, where the author uh, Charles Mann, Charles C. Mann, um, writes about uh, some, some some of the ways that this uh, impacted governmental policy. So um, he notes that uh, population control programs pressured women to use only certain officially mandated contraceptives in Egypt, Tunisia, Pakistan, South Korea, and Taiwan. Health worker salaries were uh, dictated by the number of IUDs they inserted into women. Mm. Wow. <laughs> um, in the Philippines, birth control pills were literally pitched out of helicopters hovering over remote villages. Millions of people were <sighs> sterilized, often coercively, sometimes illegally, frequently in unsafe conditions in Mexico, Bolivia, Peru, Indonesia, and Bangladesh. Okay, wait a second. I just, they were not literally thrown loose pills out of the, out of, that's what it's, it's saying. I'm sure they were part of package of relief packets <laughs> that included ph- various no. pharmaceuticals. Sure. Yes. Okay. I mean, that uh, would be, you know, it's like a pinata. Like know, you hit yeah. the pinata and it comes, <laughs> you know, birth yeah. control pills just come flying out. Yeah, but for I your think... sweet 16, that's what they should have. Yeah. We have a pinata and you hit it and it's just contraception instead of candy. Okay. Anyway, sorry. And in, um, so in, in the 1970s and 80s, in India, um, it, it, they had policies in many states that required sterilization for men and women to obtain water, electricity, and ration cards, medical care, and pay raises. <laughs> Teachers mm-hmm. could expel students from school if their parents weren't sterilized. I mean, is that but just, okay? Did that really happen? This I'm is one sure of these things. I'm sure it did. Okay. Yeah, okay. I, I believe this. You don't believe this? They get, teachers could expel students from school if their parents weren't sterilized. I, think you, you, I mean, you, I, I think the uh, I, I have um, my imagination in terms of what can happen in, in developing countries is probably far more. Okay, that's that's fair enough. But that sounds like one of these things like, oh, no, the don't say gay bill includes teachers can expel students uh, because their parents had a same sex encounter once. Mm, It's a little bit smells like that. But no, I I will I will uh, I will cede to you, cede the floor to you when it comes to the developing world because okay well but then the, the one policy that we all know about um and that was adopted in in the same time that that all of this happened um that this alarm was spreading everywhere was china's one child policy yeah um that led to huge huge numbers of of coerced i don't okay i how what were they thinking with that like did they really didn't think it through now we're gonna have a country filled with single men for whom there are no mates. Did they not think about so that? They, the thing is, is that this, the alarmist tone of 
certain people, like I think the incited by um, this man and the population, his book. Yeah, Paul Ehrlich has been vilified for this. I mean, this is it's well known, and, that and, and he it was has wrong been vilified caused... too late, right? Because it it changed policy across the world for a very long time until it became obvious that it was not. That, that all of his predictions were never going to happen. And in fact, that we were seeing the opposite happen, that that food production um, had increased. You know, it, there are so many innovations in agriculture that led to higher yields, um, that people, people the, the problem, the, the global problem is type 2 diabetes, not, right. not starvation, which is what, what he predicted. Now, having said that, of course, there are people who are starving, but if you look at the numbers of how we've been developing um, and how uh, you know the poorest of the poor are faring? Everybody's doing better. Yeah, that will starvate. All... Famines are not caused by lack of food; they're caused by infrastructural and political, and, you know, yeah, po- po- political often, corruption yeah. and yeah. wars and yes, infrastructure yes. Uh, disasters. So yes, and but but even they have been decreasing, right? So it's famines in general have been decreasing, and you're right that it could, they're actually. Um, uh, they can be routed back to policy changes. Um, and then, but then overall, we're seeing more food, like more abundant food. Um, and we're seeing people actually gain maybe too much weight and be, you know, uh, a little too nourished. Um, and we're seeing the population, the population has doubled um, or more since then. Um, so there's, he was Wait, wrong. The population wrong. has doubled even despite these initiatives, you're saying? Yeah, I, I believe Wait. so, yeah. Okay, but wait, do you know, I mean, I know you're not a China expert, but like, do you have any idea what they were thinking with the China policy? Like, like people just weren't going to survive. So it was better to have more boys like what? (laughs) Because you just basically end up with a bunch of incels. Right. But I, I don't I just don't think that they they thought it through that deeply, but largely because the alarm was so extreme. I mean, when you're you have an army of incel versus an army of like a, a starving population, you're going to choose an army of incels. Um, I'm not a China expert. I don't know the details of their <laughs> policies or, or, you know, why they did what they did. Having said that, it's really interesting because China's population is dropping just like everybody everywhere else um, in the developing world or, or in the developed world. Mm-hmm. Um, and even though the one child policy is no longer in effect, it's still uh, it's still low. They are they are, um, you know, it, 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 an interesting case of you know where policy interventions have an effect and then and then maybe you know maybe there's something else going on something else that is pushing people to just not reproduce um the way the way that they used well, to so also late capitalism i'm sorry to say it it's incredibly expensive to live is it so well is it it is how uh, how can that be? How can how can it be? That well, better, because people have been t- well, the wealth gap, and people have been told that you shouldn't have a family. I mean, for decades we were told you're irresponsible, you're sort of low class, you're it's you, know, you should not have a child unless you can afford to raise raise it properly, own a home, have a you know live and be, be middle class. But that's basically. a social problem, right? That's a normal yeah, problem. That's but, not a, that's not based in reality. Well, reality is not that people can't afford children. But people were told for a long time that you yes. are irresponsible unless you can make it to the middle class and educate your children properly and, and raise them in a safe neighborhood and et cetera, et cetera. And it's become harder and harder to get those things. 
So that makes sense. I don't I think. know if it's harder to get. Well, it things. is. I, I mean, I, look at like I mean, entire generations are not going to be able to afford to buy a, a house. I mean, where I live in Los Angeles, you cannot buy a house for under. million dollars but is that the same is that the same in texas i mean is is that isn't that like isn't that a factor housing prices are going up everywhere well they're going up every i mean you boise idaho has the is the fastest growing you know housing market in the country last time i checked so this is all sorts of factors but i don't mean to get off on real estate again but i think it's there there are a whole bunch of reasons that people that the quote-unquote responsible people are not having kids. I have a very hard time buying that people can't afford children. Uh, well, they can't afford. Hard, okay, can they ve- afford uh, to have a mother stay home? I mean, or they gonna have to have? You know, you know I was raised poor. You know, I, I, my parents right. were poor. We there were four kids. We survived. We got but out. They they were able to do it. And the this message is, would be okay. But with so, your so the, lo- the the logic is if this logic was true, if this was if this was the main uh, the, the 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 main uh, difference, that if you could just throw money at people, they would just have more kids. Um, and this relationship was very concrete. Then we wouldn't see poor countries reproducing at this kind of rapid rate, um, and rich countries producing less and less. And the richer that a country gets, if you follow the relationship, it's the inverse of what you would expect. Right, of course. Yeah, but why? Why, of course? Because they get because the more kids. women are educated, because the more education women have, the fewer kids they have. That's that metric but, but that, has always but, been in but, place. But I think that that's that, that's so that's the problem. The problem is not you can't afford kids anymore. I don't think that's, I don't think that's true. That can't possibly be true. Well, people would, even in the United States, poor people have more kids. Yeah, but only for one generation. And then the next generation, they have more education and they have fewer kids. I mean, I want to get back. So I, I think this is like so interesting because, okay, if 80% and also it's very hard to measure, I guess, men wanting kids like it always like they always Mm -hmm. say well 80 percent of women who don't have kids wish they did they don't talk to men i guess that's because it's harder to measure because there's always still a chance Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. they could the men could have kids till they're 90 the question i would want to ask men is how many of you think about having a wife and a family you know like i think a lot of them do i think a lot of them do yeah. yeah i think the question of do you want kids is, is kind of strange one for a man because single fatherhood is like an odd thing, you know, and, and they don't think about, uh, you know, the family structure and focus on the kids, I think, in the way women. Not until they have yeah. them. Well, because, but they're also aware, but also it, they're, they're, a, they don't have a biological clock. I mean, as, right, as right. much in denial as many women are about their biological clock, the fact is they know it's there. Yeah. And men yeah. are always, they know there's always a chance. But no, I know a lot of men who are really sad that they haven't found a partner yet or that they yeah, found something yeah. too late. Yeah, and I, I've seen that happen a lot. I've heard them phrase it. Like I've heard women say that they want kids, like say specifically that. And then men will say, I want a wife in a family, which is, it's sort of different. Like it's not entirely different, but I think it's oriented around something else. But, um, I, but the thing is if, right. But I, I think most, uh, just about all women who want kids want a partner a and a family, yeah. a husband yes. and a, whatever, a partner and a yes. family. Um, but do you but think the, that men would have children without women if they could? No, no. Like, like, like the way that, a, the way that a woman, uh, can, if she chooses, go to a sperm bank, 
have a child, like impregnate herself, have a child on her own, be a single mother. If somehow, like magic, you know, there was artificial womb that could give a man a child on his own and he's nearing 40 or 45 and he thinks, okay, I'll never be able to have children. I'm never finding a wife. Do you think that men would be as interested in single fatherhood because they just have to do, they have to do this. They have to have children. I I mean, I'm inclined to say it's just not part of the biological imperative, but it Mm. could be that it's socially conditioned as well. Like Mm -hmm. if we, because you know, there are more and more gay male couples that want to have a child and go to extreme lengths to be parents. Yeah. But there's still a tiny percentage of parents. Right. But that's normalized. Okay. But like if you, if there's a gay male couple and they're, you know, getting a surrogate or doing, you know, you know, going, jumping through a lot of hoops to adopt or whatever it is, you're not going to think that's weird. Mm -hmm. If it was a single man, like a single Mm -hmm. heterosexual man who had, instead of like looking really, really hard to find uh, a, a young enough wife to start a family was just going to go ahead and adopt on his own or hire a surrogate or whatever, you would think that was very strange. Yeah, <laughs> Much more so than a gay male sad. couple. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, no, and I wonder yeah. if that, so yeah. we have to, so this brings me to something. So Chris Williamson, um, who we mentioned earlier, did uh, an interview uh, recently on his podcast with a guy named Stephen Shaw, who's a data scientist and a filmmaker and uh, made a documentary where he had, he gone, he went to like a couple dozen countries and, and analyzed um, people about their re- reproductive patterns and also came to the conclusion that there, there is a serious financial collapse. And Chris uh, Williamson, who I want to have on my podcast soon, you know, he's, very interested in this idea of a mating crisis. And mm-hmm. he pr- brought up this really good point that if there's 80% of childless women, if 80% of childless women are childless due to life circumstances, mm-hmm. it's, it's a matter of helping them to be in a situation where they don't have to wait so long to have kids. It's not a matter of convincing people who don't want kids to have them. Mm-hmm. It's a matter of helping that 80% to have them earlier. Hmm. And I think that there's too much emphasis sometimes in this subject placed on convincing people who don't want kids that they should have them when that's really neither here nor there. But it doesn't, th- that's negligible. The people like me are negligible. The people who want to have them but can't. Mm-hmm. Because they were told that they have to get this huge education. They were told that they have to go to school for years mm-hmm. and years before they can do that. They were told they have to achieve some kind of, you know, baseline middle class income. They were told mm-hmm. that they, if you're a woman and you have a college degree, that you cannot marry a working class guy that doesn't have an advanced degree. Like all these rules that if you want to help the population crisis, you have to start breaking down, looking at these norms and seeing how they're not serving anybody yeah. and their barriers. Yeah. But then people get mad life. at you. People get mad at you when you say, I mean, and I did say many, many episodes ago that I think that young women should be thinking about potentially having children early. Like they should be them but, potentially yeah. before they get started on their career. So taking kind of, you know, a, a longer time to enter the workforce when they finally do, you know, you have the kids that you're going to have, they get to school age, they're going to public school, things are easier. Now you can enter the workforce legitimately. So there's, 
you know, older women sort of joining in, uh, you know, at the beginning stages in the way men would, but you're going to have that, you know, motherhood penalty anyway, it's better right. to have it, you know, later and have your kids at a time where your body can recover. From but then we have to massively restructure corporate life. I mean, you have, are we going to force employers to, are we going to create some sort of quota where you have to hire X number of women who started their careers later? I think I mean, that if they just, if this was just happening more often, that, and you could find talented women who were, you know, 28 and entering the workforce, I would rather hire a 28 year old mother than a 20 year old dude, like almost, you know, well, regardless, because you're in the, the minority. maturity, liver, but, but there's a mature, but there's a maturity difference, you know, and I think that that if that talent continues to exist, um, then then the market. I, I'm not. I'm pretty confident that the market will adjust. Um, I think don't... that you would really have to force the market to adjust, and people are not going to like that. You're going to really? hire a 28 year old mother for an entry level position for that she's not going to be able to put the hours in. If it's an entry level position, and so we're not we're not we're we're not saying that she's going to be um, a lawyer or a neurosurgeon, okay? Start her neurosurgery career. Maybe some women actually want to do this, and they're able to do this at this age. But um, I I think that the time where the motherhood penalty is the heaviest is when the kids are young, like small mothers of small children are the ones that are really unable to work in the way that. Uh, you know, it, I think it gets better. It doesn't completely go away, but it gets much better when the child is old enough um, to go to school. Like around that time, uh, you know, babysitting gets easier. Everything, everything about, you know, care gets easier um, for that child. And then as they get into like preteens, they can kind of, you know, you can leave them alone in the house. It's fine. But that's you know, a like lot. That. Okay. If people want to have, if you want people to have four kids, that's yeah. a lot of years. I mean, I don't want to have people that have, I want four kids. I know other you, people but will, you want other to be people the will only have one. one, you know, other but, people will well, have one or two. One is not know. enough, but one's not enough. Yeah. Yeah. Two. So, so let's say you, you, you have two kids. Let's well, say you have two kids, but uh, it's that's, that's a decade. Still not enough. I mean, what's replacement rate? I, I don't know. I mean, 2.1. Okay. 2.1 births per woman. So yeah. some women have to have a lot more. And I, I, I believe in uh, the, the religious rights to really uh, take the mantle there and have their 10 babies. So the, certain women are going to have lots and lots of babies um, and they're going to continue having children. Like either, maybe they enter the workforce and uh, they realize it's not for them or that they can, uh, uh, you know, downgrade to a part-time job and have another baby pop another pop one out at, 35 you have the option of doing that you know you have the option of three and four later um if you start early you just simply don't you just eliminate your ability to even have a child at all so i I think at some point you have to make a choice on what it is that you want most you know and is is that a neurosurgeon career i think i saw another i'm so haunted by the neurosurgeon that we talked about last time i can't stop thinking about it there was another um, like TikTok. I I don't know if you saw that, um, but there was a, a TikTok um, screenshot being shared around of you know a very similar thing. A woman who was 
a neurosurgeon and or, or a surgeon. I think not, it's not neurosurgeon. Not a neurosurgeon. Just not a like neurosurgeon. for somebody who went to school for a really really long time. Or something. Yeah, no, she yeah. was she was just she was just a, she's just a surgeon, and she was okay. talking about how she ultimately she didn't even. Uh, it turns out she didn't even want surgery, but now or to do surgery, but now she's thirty nine. She doesn't have a family. She's she she's worked so hard to get to this point, and she's feeling like um, her life is not where where she, what what she thought. Yeah, it would she basically be. yeah she threw away fifteen years training to be a surgeon, and now she realizes that she doesn't even like being a surgeon, and it's too late to find a partner. Yes, yes, and it's, it's really um, sad. It's really sad. It's really sad because these are you know uh, highly accomplished, intelligent women. You know these are the kind of people who I think would hopefully make good mothers. So what are you, you know? supposed to do? So then women can't be, uh, by the way, the neuro, we talked about this neurosurgeon in the bonus content last time. Uh, there was somebody had written into the social cues column in the New York times about uh, she was in her late thirties and she was a neurosurgeon and she wanted to find a boyfriend and pin him down and start a family immediately. Um, but it led to a really interesting discussion. But, but again, like, are we supposed to change the way medical schools work and surgical and, and medical residencies work in order to accommodate there's something, there's, mothers? There's something larger than that too, because I think it, it some of these women need to be getting different messages about the kind of career that is that makes sense for some men, and it doesn't even make sense for all men. Like you know, nur- the the way that it, the, the commentator on um on our last post was describing neurosurgery, it made me made me think like this is not a career for most men either you know like, of it's, course it's a career not. for a well, very tiny right. percentage of people right you know but especially when it comes to women you maybe don't want to go into the the kinds of careers that are going to ask so much of you if you if you also want all these other things yeah i, I mean and we also have to normalize committing to somebody when you're in your early to mid twenties, that's another thing that I think has been stigmatized among the educated classes. If you settle down with somebody in your twenties, you're an exception to this, obviously, but I think for a lot of people that's considered like uncool or, Mm. you know, you don't know what you're doing or you're just, you know, you're just trad or whatever it is. So Chris Williamson actually made another interesting point in this interview with Stephen Shaw he talked about this evolutionary psych theory that that people who couple up well actually if you're if you couple up young or maybe in any kind of relationship like if you're with somebody for a certain amount of time maybe you know after 5 or 8 years if there's not a child if a child doesn't come into the picture of your relationship your relationship is more likely to come apart so hmm. people who are with somebody when they're in their early 20s, you know, and they say, oh, okay, well, you know, we're, we're together, but we don't have to start having a family till we're in our early 30s. They're more likely to break up hmm. uh, if there's no child. And so you have a lot of people, and I know a lot of people like this. They were in a big, big relationship all through their 20s, and then they broke up. Hmm. And then they try, they, then they start looking for somebody else and they can't find it. And then yeah, they can't so. start a family because they yeah. were, they felt that they were not in a position to start a family with this person with whom they were really compatible, who they'd partnered up with very early. They felt like they couldn't do it or they didn't have to do it for whatever reason. And so they squandered that. That's interesting. Yeah. I feel like maybe 
it's it's just this idea of like this norm about family planning. I think we're just not clear to pe- young people about how much time you actually have to make right. this happen, you know? And so there's a matter of people making bad choices, but there's also the matter of people don't know the kind of choices that they're making. They, they don't know what they're getting themselves into. Um, and not enough people have an, have really drilled home the kinds of trade-offs that, that you might be dealing with at a time, you know, in your life where you really can't handle it. You know, you really can't be 38 and pregnant and also a manager at your job. You're going to hate life. You're going to be terrible at your job, one, <laughs> because you're pregnant and you're, you know, and you have, or you have a newborn or whatever. You have a young kid. You never sleep. Um, and then on, t- uh, you know, on top of that, you're going to be guilty all the time because you're missing these precious moments um, with your young, with your young kid at some point they're going to get older and they're going to say, go away, mom. I don't want to talk to you and I don't want to spend time with you. You know? And, and at that point, I think it's a, just a natural, there's a natural, um, you know, shelf life, I guess, to the kind of like intense bonding that you can have with kids at a certain point in their development. That's, that's very good. And then you give them space and you go back and create the kind of career that you want. Um, yeah, I just, uh, I feel like there's just a, a, a harm that society is perpetuating by not informing people, um, in a, in a way that makes sense. You know, there's a lot of shaming. There's a lot of grandma saying, when are you going to give me a kid? But, uh, uh, you know, or mom saying, when are you going to give me a grandbaby? Um, there's mm-hmm. a lot of that kind of thing, which is annoying for people. That's what I was face facing. Like, right. right. I mean, I was, I was really young when my mother was like, okay, time for you to get married. Time for you to give me a grandbaby. And that's not a very convincing argument. But if I had somebody else phrase it a little bit differently and describe what I'm going to be facing in terms of my biology later on, I think I, you know, I, I would have responded in kind. And in, in terms of these neurosurgeons, like perhaps we just have to acknowledge that there are certain career paths that make sense for men in a way that they don't make sense for women who also want to be mothers um, yeah. and just recon- reconcile ourselves with that terrible truth that that, and that it I, is that a terrible exists. It's a terrible yeah, truth. It, it is. absolutely is. It is. Because it's people, I, I mean, I saw it in the comments. People say, well, what about me- nobody worries that a man, a man who's a neurosurgeon isn't going to have enough time for his kids. You're the right about that. The man doesn't worry about that. You know well, what I mean? The like, world doesn't worry about it. The world doesn't worry, but also men feel differently about how intensely they need to bond with, with their babies. I've, I haven't seen, you know, of course, fathers also want to spend time with their children, but one, they're not, they're not like physically bound in the, in the way that the mother is, especially if she's breastfeeding for a very long time. Um, But then on top of that, there's a different emotional pull that happens with women that is often not as intense in men. And, you know, their idea of how they're taking care of their family is just, it's, it's, it's framed differently, Mm -hmm. you know, and they can be more satisfied in an, in, in a, in a situation where, you know, they see their families after 5 PM only I well, think, they're taking care of their families financially. Yes, right, right. right. They feel like they're making a sacrifice and it's very rewarding to them to be able to take care of their family in this way. Mothers have a more complicated, like, uh, you know, I, 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 the young mothers that I know often feel like the, the, the guilt is I should be the way that I can best take care of my child is to be with them, not to give them this career. The career feels selfish almost you know it's like it's something i'm doing for me because it's important for me to maintain this kind of independence and i think that's 
you know, mm-hmm. it's de- that's a hundred percent true. It's very important then that women maintain some kind, some, some way out in case the, the marriage really goes sour. Um, but ha- having said that they conceive of it differently. They conceive of them working as a kind of luxury that is important for them as individuals, but not as important for them to be doing as mothers. Right. And I think that that that's very telling. It's very telling that even most women conceive of it this way. I don't think it's unaffordable. I think that 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 main contention that 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 it is unaffordable to raise children is just it's simply just it's it's in itself a kind of a cope, because I think what people are actually saying is I don't have time for kids. And that's true. That's very much true, especially if you are continuing to have a real career. Um, then then you don't have time for kids. But time and is money. That's another way of saying I don't have the money. I don't think so, because I think I, I think you could you could say that I'll be a stay home mom. But very few women are willing to do that. And for good reason. I wouldn't do that. I don't do that. You know, I think a I think, lot of them want to. I hear from a lot of women who say, I, I wish I could stay home. LA I just can't afford York, it. I'm not I mean, anywhere. Gotta... No, it's like it, it, you, the idea that you can raise a family on one salary. I think it's pretty well established that that doesn't happen all that often anymore. You pretty much need two salaries. I, I think it's just maybe my, my conception of what a happy home looks like and what you know, what, what a family can survive on and do well on and thrive on is probably different than what a lot of these people who are saying you can't possibly survive um, are thinking, because of course you, of course you have a money crunch, but that's not, that's not a bad life. That's not, you know, that that's still life. And those are precious years that you have with your family. Um, You know, I, I think what Penelope Trunk was talking about where, where she was advising me not to, uh, live in New York because my husband can't afford. Yeah, you got to get out of New York, Sarah. I mean, she's right. When she's she's right. New York? You know, I wouldn't, I couldn't do that. <laughs> and I couldn't compete with that social net, the social circle. You know, I couldn't. And if I was living in that environment in, in New York city, if I had a certain kind of social class and I wanted to keep up with those people, you're right. I wouldn't be able to afford a family. I feel like, but by the way, Sarah does not live in New York, just in case I know you seem like you seem so New York. And I think that people think you, live there really? but look you don't live is that it's a bad not like thing? you you don't live in the sticks did you mean Come that on. in the bad way no new york uh no i think a, a lot thing? of people a lot of people think that we're both in new york and the fact oh. is that neither of us are yeah but look but you don't live in the sticks and you are not gonna send your kids to uh, i mean you want them to go to a good college it's gonna cost money i would presume I don't think I want my kids to go to college. Okay, well, the, they might have right. to. To go to um, college at all? You don't kinda, yeah. want them to go to college at all. <laughs> I think that if I could um, like totally rearrange my life, um, one alternative would be, yeah, to move to Texas or somewhere where housing is like way, way, way more affordable um, and then to homeschool. Oh my and I God. think that that would what be. What about our podcast? Don't. No, I know. Like then we couldn't do plan. a podcast, which is why I can't do this and yeah. I can't abandon you and I, I, I would no, never do it. Please. I mean, you know, fuck no. the kids. Yeah. And that's spending time with them. Um, not, it's not, not so important. Okay, good. Anyway, Get your but. priorities straight. Um, wow. Okay. Well, this, so yeah, we don't have time to talk about this now, but there was, this is absolutely relevant to a piece that was in New York Magazine in the cut. Uh, just dropped the other day talking about the the Fleischman effect. And that refers to Taffy Brodesser Ackner's novel Fleischman is in trouble, which came out a few years ago. And then there was a, 
um, Hulu, I think it was on Hulu. There was a streaming series based on it. And it's about these, this class of super, super strivers in New York city, uh, trying to raise kids on what in the past would have been enormous salaries. But for instance, a doctor, if the main, one of the main characters is a, is a doctor, he's a hepatologist, liver doctor and making $300,000 salary. And that's considered just very quaint. Like all the hedge Mm. funders, all his hedge funder neighbors are like, Oh, that's so nice that you do that. Um, and so, uh, yeah, of course there was the, there was the perfunctory, uh, New York magazine story about, uh, how this was a zeitgeist thing and everybody's Nobody can make it on a $700,000 salary. Nobody uh, can. But, and actually, yeah, um, the comments were, uh, fascinating. The comments were actually really smart and insightful. The, the piece was interesting and maddening, but the comments were really good. So anyway, uh, I don't know. Maybe we'll talk about this in our, in our bonus content, but there's a lot rate, of other good comments too that people had on our last, um, episode yeah, that I, I definitely we'll, we'll address your so, those comments so, as well. So. So we'll um, do that. We'll go to the bonus. Well, this was a lot. Is that it for now? Do we have any announcements? I think that's good. I think that, yeah, we have a, we've done a lot. Yeah, we've done a lot. Re- please rate and review our show please. either and super re- favorably or super negatively. People be leaving uh, negative comments, Megan. That's good. That's a sign of success. That means that they're not worried about, that means they don't even see us as real people. That They're not worried about good. us after them because I, no, we- I will, I will coming after i don't know i don't i don't mind because it's like they see us as as superhuman they're punching up oh we, we can't be hurt they can say whatever they want okay um, all right sounds good sounds um, good okay leave positive reviews only or else <laughs> okay. yeah megan's po- fine megan's fine with it but i'm not leave a positive review otherwise you're a misogynist good okay i think we covered that Good. Okay, that's good. All right. Well, see, see you now. Hell. All right. Now we're in the bonus bonus room, the bonus dungeon. Uh, yeah, we were going to talk about antinatalism, but we forgot. We forgot because I have a lot to say about it. Mostly because I just like really dislike the movement. Um, you're not. You don't like the voluntary human extinction movement. Well, I mean, so much of it is, uh, you know, it's part of this philosophy that it is immoral to have kids. Have you heard about this? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I, well, because that was, you know, it's funny because we were talking earlier about Paul Ehrlich and the population bomb that was from 1970. I mean, as, as recently as 1998, Bill McKibben, the environmental writer, extremely well-respected, he wrote a book called Maybe One which was an argument for having one child. Mm. So as recently as 1998, Bill, this is the description for maybe one. Bill McKibben argues that the earth is becoming dangerously overcrowded and that if more of us chose to have only one child, it would make a crucial difference toward ensuring a healthy future for ourselves and our planet. But the environment alone may not persuade most people to consider having just one. Um, slightly 80% of Americans have siblings. So basically Bill McKibben and his wife decided to have one child. So he wrote a book uh, justifying that decision, which is a great reason to write a book. I mean, that's, you know, that's why you write books. Yeah. But But, uh, (laughs) it's not, it's not the right. I just, 
I mean, on the one hand, it's true that it, I don't think a lot of people are influenced by, you know, antinatalists and their arguments, but it's, it's to the extent that anyone is, we have a problem with not enough people, uh, you know, we're, we're not, we're nowhere near replacement level right now. Um, and that's not a good thing. Um, barring some technological changes and innovations that, that, that make the future a little bit brighter for all yeah. of us, you know, in the meantime, you know, I do think there is something about, uh, you know, not having kids and then and then really looking down on people who do have kids is immoral, which is what bothers me about. Yeah, the, no, I hate that. That's the whole child free thing. Yeah, thing. it's very I, I sticky. Is- it's it's just like very. It's just silly. It's it's pretty. It's quite hateful, you know. And I and I thought that way even before I I had kids because I remember I used to be. Back in the day when I had a lot of time, um, like a frequent Reddit, you know, denizen. Um, <laughs> it's where a, you were looking for guys. Well, you know, oh, yes, you're bored. and Cruising for a boyfriend on Reddit. There's lots to do on on Reddit. Lots of fun little like subreddits and little communities. And I had a great username, which I won't um, reveal. And it was such a good username. And I deleted my account and somebody, I guess, took it or something, but it's gone now. And I can't, I, I, mm. I don't know. Um, uh, it's, mm. it's awful, terrible. But in, in any case, there they have their subreddits for the antinatalists. And I go, I went on it um, j- right before we were recording this episode, just <laughs> to like, you know, just to like hate follow, like just, but this place, this our antinatalism. Uh, this community supports antinatalism, the philosophical belief that having children is morally wrong and cannot be justified. Um, okay. And this whole, the whole feel of this movement of this community is just so foreign to me. Like it's, it's so like alien, truly alien. I mean, they talk about parents, they call them breeders, breeders. And there's a lot of genuine, disgust at the idea of having a child um or having a child you know with disabilities all these things like it's why the you know i feel like when i was 14 i could totally get into this mindset you know i, I could have i would have logged into our antinatalism and I'm like yeah you know, fuck humanity everyone sucks <laughs> you know, i shouldn't have never yeah, it's born. just called being you know, goth <laughs> I feel like I could have, you know, and they're genuinely, many of them are mad. They're, they're like, I should have never been born. Like, it, 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 and, uh, you know, life is, is pain and suffering. It is also happiness, but it's not worth the fact that it, there's a lot of pain and suffering. Um, and you cannot morally justify any life, including my own life, which I, I kind I, of, is, yeah, it's goth. It's, it's, <laughs> I kind of feel that way though. A really? little bit. Yeah. Really? But I, no. yeah, but no, no, I actually have a lot to say about this. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a there's a, a philosopher named David Benatar, a South African philosopher who um, yes. makes the case. I, I, I I'm like fascinated by this guy. Um, he uh, makes the case for better never to have been is the name of his book about this. Mm-hmm. And uh, no, I mean, I, this is very theoretical. Yes. Um, yes. But I don't think anybody really should be born. I mean, when you get right down to it. What? Why? Well, I mean, I'm just on, on a on a on a totally theoretical level, like Why? none of us Why really need to be here. Need to know, but is it a good that it's happening? I think some people 
I know a lot of people I bet would say like on balance, was their life worth living? Probably not. I think a lot, I think a lot of people would say that if they're honest, that doesn't mean that they don't want to be alive. It's not the same thing as saying, because I think there's a big difference. Is it like, was I, I mean, I know people who say, uh, I, I love my children. Would I do it all over again? No, I've had a lot of people say that to me. Well, that's just, so that's like saying regrets. Like I have regrets in the way that I've lived my life, but that's not the same thing as saying I regret having lived. I bet a lot of people would say that. Would you say that? Was that, that's true for you? Um, I mean, on like a very, I, I don't, so yeah, sometimes I do feel that way. And that doesn't mean that I don't want to live. I feel that I have done a lot with my life. I don't. I, I definitely am fulfilled, like, but I don't know. This is really, really complicated and I don't want, it's very easily misconstrued and it just sounds a lot darker than it is. But I, but I, uh, yeah, I I would have to like articulate this a little better. More than it, more than what's that? It sounds like an apathy more than. Oh, I thought you meant it's an average, but it's almost is like an averaging. Like you, if you average out all your life experiences, is it going to, be like under 50% or over 50% positive. But does that, um, I don't think that that's a metric that matters, you know? It doesn't um, matter. I, I agree with you there, but it doesn't matter. But if you were going to measure it, uh-huh. what would it be? Sure. I mean, I, I think many of my experiences are boring more so than like not one way or the other. Uh, more so than neg- necessarily suffering, but I think there's, I mean, it's so so. What you're doing in your life right now, you are putting yourself on purpose, and you know, like a lot of painful positions because you have a certain way you want to live, and you have you have certain goals that you want to achieve, and you're striving. You know, you're you're striving, and that is a process of pain. But is that not worthwhile? You know, I think it is worthwhile. Yeah, yeah, I think it is worthwhile. Okay, let's take somebody, but like, say that you're born with a horrible disability. Mm-hmm. Is your your life has value, of course, right? But if some if that person were to say, on balance, my life wasn't worth living, I would have been better off not having been born. Like that's a really really harsh, dark statement. It's very hard for people to to take that in. But like, let's say you were going to be able to compartmentalize and be as dispassionate as possible and take that in and just look at it intellectually, take all your feelings out of the equation. Could you see that person's argument? Only if, you know, their life was some kind of extreme, you know, like the condition was extremely painful or it forced them in a, forced them to, you know, they were so severely handicapped that they really couldn't communicate with people, do anything. And they were just like trapped by themselves. A lot of people have those lives. Yeah. I mean, if you're you're comatose and you're never going to come out of a coma, I think it's better to just, you know, pull the plug. Um, And then there's like shades of gray beyond that point. Um, But I think that, you know, even with disability, even with maybe even severe disability, I think for the most part, it's worth living. Although it depends on the severity. It really does depend on the severity of the disability because I have people in my family that are so severely just, I mean, I have a huge family. Um, both sides of my family are just 
so many, everybody had a billion babies. Um, so I, I, I have uh, people in my family who are severely disabled, like in a home kind of thing, can't communicate, can't do anything. And like as like, young people, they were like this? Uh, they, yeah, the, the person I'm thinking of is um, like a very uh, low functioning autism. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's always been this way. And he's, uh, you know, he doesn't communicate, he doesn't live any kind of life. He's in the home most of the time. He's, you know, it, it's very... now. I don't know if we have the right to make that decision for him. Um, having said that, there's no way of knowing what his decision would be. And maybe he would prefer to like not live the life on balance, um, given the kind of life he actually does live. Um, but I think that outside of that kind of very extreme scenario, um, I can't even contemplate it because, you know, I know people on various levels of disability that are, that would still leave, live meaningful lives. And I don't think they would choose to not live. Um, or not. Yeah. No, I think think at the end of the day, most people do choose to live. I mean, that's like the majority of people who get life ending medication because they have a terminal illness. It's enough just to have it on hand that they know they have the option and the vast majority end up not using it. Yeah. Which speaks to a lot. So the, you know, this idea that I guess there is a difference between ending your life right now, you know, that I end my life right now versus I've never lived. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I think those are, there are two different scenarios. And I think one is more repulsive than the other for obvious reasons. But in my mind, both are repulsive. But you're saying that in your (laughs) mind, only one is really all that repulsive, which I don't think I I wouldn't use the word repulsive for either. I think it's more like hard. they're, They're hard to contemplate i mean it's just very hard to get your arms around it as a as as a collection of concepts anyway this is getting i feel like i would need to think a lot harder but this is not supposed to be the fun bonus we're gonna lose we're losing subscribers as we speak you know what i i but it's it's so this i'm sorry it's just a it's this fucking subreddit it's just the, the darkest place ever and you know what i just went on there and they posted this poem that i love and i think it's a great poem and you know, the, the person posted it saying, I, I think it's meant to be pro-natalist, but it's just so depressing. And it's like, these people, I feel like they just don't, I don't understand their world. I don't understand where they're coming from. Like, they, Wait, what's the poem? Are you going to read? Is it short? Uh, does it rhyme? Well, I, yeah, I can read it. it. It does not rhyme. It's one of those. Oh, um, it's uh, Good Bones. Hold on. Let me just. Good Bones by Maggie Smith. And I. Oh, Maggie Smith. Yeah, yeah. I, I I read this poem, like encountered this poem, like a couple of years ago, and then I bought her book. Um, and I never buy poetry, so there's that. But let me let me let me recite it. <clears throat> okay. Uh, Life is short, though I keep this from my children. Life is short, and I've shortened mine in a thousand delicious, ill-advised ways. A thousand deliciously ill-advised ways that I'll keep from my children. The world is at least 50% terrible, and that's a conservative estimate, though I keep this from my children. For every bird, there is a stone thrown at a bird. For every loved child, a child broken, bagged, sunk in a lake. Life is short, and the world is at least half terrible. And for every kind stranger, there is one who would break you, though I keep this from my children. I'm trying to sell them the world. Any decent realtor walking you through a real shithole chirps on about good bones. This place could be beautiful, right? 
you could make this place beautiful. Oh my God. I lo- I'm like a little choked up. Right? It's a it's, great, it's, it's beautiful. Great, yeah, it's and that beautiful. gets back to real estate because of course that's what I they know. say about houses. <laughs> this house has good bones. Yeah. I got to that part and I, yeah, this is just, this is a full circle, um, podcast. Yeah. So you keep it from your children. So it's if like, you I mean, don't, if you right. don't have children, you don't have anybody to keep that from. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's in, it's in you more. Maybe. I think it, it's a good encapsulation of the, you know, the horror of it all and the optimism and, and like beauty, you know, coinciding and uh you know she she does a very excellent job um at illustrating all of this and i love the end and how yeah. it, how, it, how it actually ends yeah very dark. all right well that's been so, some good bonus so content guys that's Gosh, yeah so thoughtful should, should we wrap it up no <laughs> <laughs> no you wanted to discuss um this article now you, you have to explain it to me because i haven't read oh, it. the fleischman you're right uh, yeah, but I think we should, we're, we're also going to address your comments. I mean, I don't know. We don't have to like dwell on the Fleischman thing. It was, it's a, yeah, like I was saying, so Fleischman is in trouble is a novel, uh, by Taffy Brodesser Agner, who's a friend of mine, and they made a series about it. Uh, and it's, it's on this, it's about a, it's told from the point of, mostly from the point of view of a guy, um, who's, he's, he's a, he's a doctor. They live in Manhattan. They've got two kids. Um, he's pretty content with his life. He's very fulfilled in his job, even though he makes a mere 300,000 a year. And his wife is this like extremely ambitious um, theatrical agent. She's constantly striving. She wants to keep up with their fancy neighbors. The kids go to the fanciest private school and the girls get Cartier watches for their 13th birthdays, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's about, it's about a lot of things in class and, there's a crisis in their marriage. We don't need to go into the details, but um, between the novel and the the series, a lot of people have been watching and thinking about this. And so there was the New York magazine piece about how uh, the Fleischman effect and now all these uh, extremely rich strivers are supposedly reconsidering their lives. I mean, the thing is it's the people, they, you get certain parts of Brooklyn and Manhattan, and this is true, I'm sure, in the in D.C. and you know a lot of major cities. You just get into this vicious cycle where you feel like you have to give your kids. This is a parenting phenomenon, primarily. That's why I, th- I think you might kind of be interested in this. But you know, you you think that you have to put your kids in the absolute best school and get them the absolute best piano teacher and there there was talk of a russian math tutor apparently this is a thing now yeah yeah i would definitely put my kids in russian math how do you get i want it like i want lex i want to hire lex friedman as a as my kids yeah uh, I, I mean, evidently it's just like a different conceptualization of math um the focus is like kind of algebraic from what i understand which is oh. not much anything much of anything but um yeah, interesting. interesting. Okay, so anyway, so so right, so they just it takes gobs of money in order to maintain this lifestyle, uh, and then the whole point of it is so your kids can go to the best colleges and then get high flying jobs and then just repeat the whole thing again with their own kids and be miserable and everybody's just miserable generation after generation. I feel like there's I read stuff like this and I think. I didn't read it. You read it. Thank you for the summary. You don't need to read it. 
Yeah. Um, uh, uh, you did, you did a good job explaining. You can read the comments. Okay. Um, but don't, don't you think that it seems like the solution is simple, which is like, stop trying to measure how good your life is based on what other people have or don't have or expect of you or don't expect of you. And if you can just turn that switch off, if you can just say, I don't care what other people think and I don't care what other people have. And that's just not how I'm going to value my time or my life. Then you're free. Well, they're going to say in theory, that's great. But the fact is it's a hyper competitive environment. And if I don't take these steps to give my kids these advantages, they are going to suffer. I owe it. I had these kids. I put them into this world and it's my responsibility to give them the tools that are necessary to survive. Otherwise I have failed. It's a parent. It's a moral failing. Survival is also, I mean, again, survival means like making $300,000 or or more, which I think is a, it shows you that it's a twisted little subculture. Yes, Yes. In order for them to survive in that subculture, to continue to be socially where their parents are, they have to do this and this and this. And that's, that's what this means. But I think maybe if you just make comfort with the fact, become comfortable with the fact that your kids might live in a very different social environment, perhaps one, you know, God forbid, you know, lower than well, yours. Well, we're talking about downward mobility. Well, then there has to be an acceptance of downward mobility. Right, right. And or I think just, that's really hard for people to swallow. Very, very hard. I think we need some like Buddhist values in like really inculcated in people because I guess maybe just, so it's interesting because I have people in my family who are very, very status oriented and very much like their happiness depends on where they happen to be in their social circle, you know? And I've, I've asked some of these people like point blank, um, would you rather be, you know, the poorest person in your neighborhood, like in your group of friends, um, but you're, but, but you're all rich, you know, like you're all top, 0.01% or the richest person in a social circle of like altogether poor people, like who are on this like bottom strata of society. And, um, and she said, uh, I would rather be, (laughs) I would rather be rich in a group of poor people. Um, and and, you know, and I, I think she was just very, she's very upfront about the fact that what matters to her is her relative standing in her social environment and that's how she defines a happy life and a good life. But I think it's it's so telling that what what that actually reveals is that she doesn't believe in a an objective happier good life, you know, at all. That it's it's only ever relative to the social environment. Um, and I think a lot of people actually accept this philosophy without thinking about it in those terms. Yeah. Yeah, but once you're in it, it's really hard to get out of it. I mean, we all, we all sort of are in cults in our own way. Everybody's kind of walking around in their own version of a cult. Really? Something that they've been indoctrinated into. Some of us are mildly autistic and uh, we feel differently about things. Maybe, maybe that's also a cult. I don't know. Mm. I mean, mean, it's hard. It's there's a fine line between cult mentality and, feeling like you're beholden to your community and feeling aligned with your community. It's all a spectrum. Yeah. Yeah. I, I... But I don't know. I think, it, I think that a lot of people who 
have kids if they're quote unquote like this is back to what we were saying earlier if they're quote unquote responsible parents the idea is to give your kids as good if not better of a life than you had right right but that could mean a lot of things you know what i mean like in the case of somebody who's working crazy hours a day you know i would think that it's a possibility of a better life is somebody who's not working crazy hours a day who's working less but making a decent enough income to support a small family you know like i think i i agree that we're just trapped in that mindset of you have your social social circle and you have to compete within that social set and to downgrade quote unquote uh is is to to abandon your children to a lifestyle of misery but i think that assumption is just it's false it presumes that the poor people in the world are living miserable lives that they're not happy and they don't find joy and they don't like they don't look at their lives but they're 80 and look back and think i live a great life their whole you know but their standards their 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 metric is entirely different but that's I mean, a always, lot of, yeah. but that's always going to be the case. You know what I yeah. mean? And and that's going to be the case for us. Like people looking at our lives, you know, a hundred years in the future or whatever, the point zero zero one percent now, they'll say that you know Sarah lives a life not worth living. Um, she struggles. She can't you know afford takeout all the time, and she can't. And I just wouldn't want to live that way. Uh, you know, uh, or whatever. You know, and I, I think you can always you can always think that way, but that's. I don't know. I feel like it's a very empty way of measuring what matters. Oh, for sure. I yeah. I totally yeah, yeah, agree. No, I, the question I, I, is, I you can acknowledge that it's an empty way of measuring what matters, but that's a separate question. That's a separate problem than how are you going to cope with the with the conditions that you have. I mean, the New York thing. A lot of people in the comments were saying, well, there's one solution to all these people's problems, put your kid in public school. Now, the problem with that is that the good public schools in New York are are either on a lottery system. It's very, very difficult to get your kid in those schools. I mean, the competition and the gamesmanship and the strategizing to get your kid into a good public school is more intense than anything being described in this piece. (laughs) Okay, like... That's its own other thing. And the the kids whose parents understand how to work the system have a huge advantage over the kids whose parents don't. So a lot of this is just the economy of big cities Mm. and income inequality. And just, it's very untenable. Um, I think I, I think it's untenable in certain places. I, I, I really do agree. I agree with you that New York is, just you can't you, it, to to make it in a certain kind of strata is very very hard, um, especially in New York now. It's increasingly becoming a place where you just can't you can't afford to be if you're if you're poor or or if you agree or to if you're live not like rich. Immigrants. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If, if, if you and nobody wants to live like immigrants, like nobody wants to live in that kind of like shoebox, like and with fifty mm-hmm. people and grandma and grandpa and everything. Um, but I I don't think. Most of America is like that. I, you know, we keep going back, we keep going round, round circle, circling this whole place. But I have, you know, many family members who live in Texas, and they don't live, you know, they live in like uh, suburbs of big cities, so they don't live like downtown anywhere. They live in like suburbia, quite, 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 a, quite a way, um, 
maybe like, you know, 30 to 40 minutes away from like driving distance from the main downtown. And they don't make a lot of money. Like their, their, their husbands are not, you know, some of them are doing well, but many of them are not. Um, having said that they can afford a home, they can raise families and, you know, they have good lives. I feel like it's, it's, you know, but they're not going to the best schools or children are not going to compete on a national level in terms of, you know, the tippy tippy income. I don't think that they're doomed to a, an unsatisfying life. Um, and I, I, I think that their, their environment is not a bad one. And in, in some cases might be a very good one. I, I went to a competitive high school, um, which was strange given, you know, where, where I grew up, but my high school was quite competitive and it was, it like broke some kids, you know, like some kids like broke from the pressure of how much, like how many AP courses they were expected to take and get like A pluses, not A minuses, not A's, A pluses in all of those classes in order to be, in order to get into the, you know, top 10%, top 5%, top 1%. And, there were people like out of the people that got into the, um, you know, uh, you know, you, so high schools are ranked. Um, yeah. Uh, and in my high school on graduation, 40 people tied for number one. Wow. You have, think, you have to think about the kind of competition that gets you to that place where 40 people were basically got a pluses in everything and took as many AP courses as it was, as it was possible for them to take at, <laughs> yeah. you know, um, nuts completely nuts um and that really it 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 was not good for everyone some people could handle it i liked it i'm glad i was there not everybody could um and i think the parents that were forcing their kids to go to this school because it was the best best school weren't necessarily making choices for those kids that were the best for them right well it's their own identity it's the parents ego and self-concept but It's okay. Well, if we have a population dearth, why is it so hard to get into college? Why do we have exponentially more people, more kids applying to college now than in the past? Why are so many people going to college? Yeah, I think there's a larger percentage though of is going to college because that's what you need to get an entry level position anywhere. Right, and this is a pro- see. Then this is this is a problem. It's a it's a big problem. I don't know why it's um it's sort of bound to happen and it can only, I think it can only end on the, in the employer's level, but they have no, they have no incentive to do it. Yeah. Um, but if college becomes cheaper, things will come, become a little bit better, but um, it, it only a little bit, I don't think it'll solve the, the ultimate problem, which is bigger than that, but we should move on to the, some of the comments. People left a lot of mm-hmm. comments. Um, uh, a lot of them uh, about the topics that we've already covered quite a bit. This this neurosurgeon who's haunting all of us. I know. Um, yeah, I'm going to write a huge piece for New York Magazine called the Neurosurgeon Effect. Yeah, that's just yeah, it's it's ruining us. Yeah, it's very zeitgeisty. Okay. Yep. okay. Okay. The neurosurgeon, the the childless neurosurgeon within. Yeah. Okay. I think that would be a really good one. Um, mm-hmm. Okay. So some, lots of people commented about lipstick yes. being gross or not being gross, which was so interesting. It's interesting to me that people had a lot to say about this. But I think they were also uh, alarmed that you were drinking wine out of a cup. I think I just said cup. I know. Okay. I was going to say something at the time I I just, when you I said that. I, I was like, Sarah, don't drink. Like, you know, 
Or maybe I was drinking from a cup. If you pour it into a mug, if you're drinking like vodka out of a coffee mug, you have a problem. If you're drinking vodka out of a glass, it's fine. And you can drink it like that at any time of the day, and it's fine because it's in a fancy vodka glass. Is that that's right? Okay, good. Um, No, I drink from whatever. I I do have wine glasses, and sometimes I drink from the wine glasses. Mostly, I drink from the wine glasses, but occasionally I don't. Occasionally, I mean, you can't see me. I should give her a day off, folks. Did I? I don't know. I don't even know if I just said cup. And no, you did. You said cup because I almost stopped you, the conversation you, and you, commented you, you on it. I said, you know, I'd let it go. I'd let cup. it go, Megan. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let it go. Um, so, thank you for being. Yeah. Um, yeah. The lipstick. I think that a lot of these guys maybe don't realize they they think it's lip gloss when it actually is lipstick, or like they think mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you um, can't you can't trust men. They have no idea what they're. No, about. I know. Uh, they don't that, really. That must be really frustrating to the one man who does get it. Like he just has a bunch of sisters, and he knows like the whole the whole. He knows the difference, right? Uh, and then for everyone to be like, you know, you don't even know. Uh, I know. Yeah, not all men. Hashtag not all men are clueless about makeup. Yeah, yeah. Um, there were a lot of really um interesting comments about trans stuff, which were I don't want to get into, but. Uh, I'm saving them for the, you know the next time that we we do cover that <laughs> stuff. Yeah. Um, let's see. I'm sorry, I lost it. People had subscription trouble, which we should address. Um, there were some issues going on uh, with our. You know, n- we're prepping for a new season, and we're we're changing some things on the back end. Oh, the episode went out twice. The yeah. episode went out twice. Yeah, sorry, you weren't crazy. You weren't seeing double that. Yeah, and I think that, that there, something changed about bonus content being visible to some people and not to others, or something like that. We're not 100 percent sure, but it should be fixed by fixed at this point. Um, and uh, let's see, there are so. Um, somebody said that you astutely observed that I have the certainty gene. And that she's certainty always, Jane. This is a certainty Jane. Yeah. Who says I've always been envious of those with such a temperament as for them. It is seemingly a default way of being in the world. The self-conscious and self-doubt has diminished with age and it is much better at 44 than 24, but still, and you responded to that, which is interesting. I thought that was an interesting response. You said, I get less certain the older I get. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Because I used to be very, I was more like you. I was very like, this is the way it is. This is good. This is bad. This is how people should be. Not that I'm not that you're like that, but no, no then the older that. you get, yeah. you see people are just like, the world is so fucked. Like people are just such fuck ups and weird shit happens and good people do bad things. And there's just all kinds of exceptions and like life is crazy and weird. And I think it's just harder to be certain about things. I mean, I'm, mm. I'm def- I, I think we might be confusing what I mean by certainty. Like I definitely, I'm more, it's not that I'm less confident in myself. Like I'm, I, 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 I'm, I'm more, I know who I am more. I know myself more. I'm more certain about what works for me and what doesn't. I'm certain about myself. Well, I, I'm certain about my own kind of life, but I think I'm less certain in my opinions or in my perceptions of my positions. Maybe I'm, I'm more of a squish, mm. a squish. Squish. Mm, squish. Yeah. Um, I'm a squish. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I don't know. Um, well, yeah, but you just feel very, you're very certain 
you feel you're very you have you're very strong in your convictions. Am I? I think I'm yeah, just talking, no, it's good. Just I think it's a way that that <laughs> appears that that way to but others. I, but I, I think that's I, I, good. I just don't hedge. Um, but that's not because in my own mind, I'm not considering there are other alternatives, but that despite, despite all that, I move forward anyway. Um, yeah, I, mean, I, think- I just think that I'm, you, I, I, I'm aware of having had certain opinions in the past that I was felt very strongly about. And now I can see that they were sort of wrong. No, but I, I, I mean, that's my whole brand was that I was Muslim and then I'm not Muslim. You know, um, and I felt very powerfully about being religious when I was religious and I was a big proselytizer back then. And then I left and then became a big proselytizer about that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, you're, but the, yeah, but you're certain, but you have a, the certainty, Jane. I think that the same certainty that allowed you to be a, a, a proselytizing Muslim is the certainty that allows you to be I don't know if it's certainty. I think it's just that I have a lower level, I have a lower threshold that needs to be met before I feel that I can state something publicly and tell everyone else to fuck off. Um, yeah. You know, and, and some people have like a very high threshold before like there have to be, it has to be without a doubt, a hundred percent the case um, before they'll even wonder out loud um, for, yes. for various, you know, they have to talk themselves out of every other scenario. Yeah. That's right. True. Yeah. But I, I mean, I feel like I consider a lot of scenarios. I just, I think I'm just kind of, I mean, one can say the nice way of putting it would be oblivious socially, but I think the, the, the less nice way of saying it, less charitable way would just be like, maybe I'm just a little arrogant. <laughs> that could be true. Um, I don't you know, know. Arrogant then, arrogant now, you know, has but I think, yeah, but it's, uh, I don't know. It's, it's good. I've It'll always been this you. way. I've been this way since I was five. I've, I've always been like leading, you know, when I was, I was a kid in Pakistan and I was, you know, rallying up the troops, you know, my little cousins for one, you know, goal or, or another. I've always done this. Wait, like what? What were you trying to do when you were five? You were like, let's oh, um, yeah. start a government or something. Like what were you trying to do? Protest the treatment that we've, We've all been, yeah. Okay, so here, this is. Um, I had an uncle, uh, so we lived in a group group home. Um, it's common among Pakistanis to have like these multi-family homes, um, where everybody has like a kitchen and like two rooms and a bathroom or whatever. And um, uh, uh, the brothers in one family live together with their wives and children. And it's great mm-hmm. um, because you just get to be a little pack of kids. Uh, and I, I lived in something like that, uh, when I was in Pakistan and I had one uncle who would come back from, he, he, he worked in America and he would come back, uh, every couple of months to visit, um, like twice a year or so. And he would bring with him all these American goodies that were just so like, so wow, so, so good. So amazing. Like <laughs> a big part of that was just like, we just didn't have them there. Yeah. You know? So it was just not that they were that spectacular, but like toys felt. or what kind of stuff? Kit Kat. Oh, food, candy. Yeah. yeah. Specifically uh-huh. Kit Kat. So he would bring these big, <laughs> big, like, like a suitcase, half a suit, just ton of Kit Kat. And they would put it in the, in the, in the freezer. Um, and sort of like parcel it out to, to their kids. And 
my uncle, he didn't like kids very much. And his way, he used Kit Kat as a way of controlling all of us. And he would say, <laughs> and he would say, all of you have to like, you have to sit down. You have to sit straight on this couch. And I don't want you to move a single muscle. Like it's a, it, it was as if it's a game, you know, we're playing, but nobody could move a single muscle. Everybody had to like be frozen on the couch for long periods of time <laughs> and wow. if you if you you know if he was if he saw you he would be like peeking through the window and like coming into the room and he would see you and if you were moving then you did not get kid cat um <laughs> oh my God. I'm, gonna, I'm calling child protective <laughs> services retroactively and it worked you know and it worked interpol one time child protective I just, services. Um, one time i had enough and i gave a little i gave a little speech to my cousin's um, that, that this is, this is like cruel and unusual and Kit Kat is not even that great. <laughs> Mars bars exist and they're pretty good and we can get those without having to do this. So let's not, oh. and then, you know, what is he going to do? Not give the Kit Kat to us? You know, like <laughs> who is he going to, he's not going to eat it. And you were five. And I must've been like, cause I came, I was in America when I was seven. So, um, I must've, wow. been, I must've been five or six or something, but I was very, very young and, I remember like I like led them in a little revolt and everybody was like, yeah. And then we, you know, um, jumped off of that couch and uh, that was the last time uh, our uncle could uh, control us in that way. And I'm very proud of that. Um, wow. That's a really moving story. Yeah. All kinds of, I've all kinds of little, you know, little Spartacus moments and mm -hmm. all this stuff where I felt like I was leading a crusade uh, for, as it turns out, meaningless shit. But at the time, it felt very important. Yeah. And you know oh. what? The, the Kit Kat was all messed up, too, because it would come in from the airport and be in, in Pakistan, like, until he got to the house. So it was all melted. And then it was refrozen. <laughs> refrozen, so yeah. <laughs> so it was misshapen. It was way, like, some of the, like, the wafer was, like, poking out, like, a bone, you know? Like, oh. Yeah. Also, Kit Kat, that's random. What? Because that's I would. That's not even, even in the top like ten of candy. No, it wasn't. Think. It wasn't, and I was. Uh, it that occurred to me, and I yeah. It, it's not even that good. But in Pakistan, a lot of the candies were like, um, like Mars bars, which I I don't really see here at all. Um, Bundies, which are our, our version of M and M's, um, like Pakistan oh. version of M and M's, they were worse. Did you have? Uh, I mean, I think the best candy is Junior Mints. Mm, really? Me. Oh my god! Fantastic. No. It's great. And they're really good if you keep them in the freezer and just have like right. a few every every once in a while. Um, a lot. Right. That was a lot. What's that? That was a lot. Do we want to talk yeah, about Yeah, that's riveting stuff. Okay, uh, <laughs> junior Mints. I'm glad I, I'm glad I elevated the, the, your story with my Junior Mint uh, tidbit. Um, okay. Well, yeah. Any, any other things in the comments before we wrap it up? Um, there was one guy who said, who noted, uh, which was like something I always thought was true anyway. He said, most doctors do not spend t much time listening to people without doctoral degrees. And Do he's a, wait, he's what? If the himself. patient doesn't have a, a doctoral degree, what? To people without, you know, like, so, so this was in a, it, this was in a conversation where Jessamy starts it and she talks about how she's both her husband and sister are practicing doctors. Um, and so she, she talks about, she was mentioning this in terms of the gender politics of the American Academy of Pediatrics or, or uh, American Me Medical Association. Um, and, you know, uh, 
she says, probably your doc would be progressive either way. I just think of it as another religion. And then some guy commented off of that and said that that's Gen X. People are coming up. This is John, John Mm -hmm. Bingham Mm -hmm. said, people are coming up now that are in a different milieu of information. There are broad questions on the transgender thing, Uh, mandatory diversity seminars at every level of education. And we are very well-educated people. Um, And so this guy, I think is, he's a part-time clinician. Um, hmm. He says, I'm supposed to be up on a million different things professionally, uh, that he finds it a massive struggle to process information, um, even though he has more free time than most working doctors. Um, keeping up on the news is hard, especially when traditional news outlets are worthless. I heard people on these podcasts talking casually about how they read a guest's novel, and I think, I don't have time for that. Um Uh, Anyway, then he says, most doctors do not spend much time listening to people without doctoral degrees, let alone Sarah Hader, who is apparently a lowly college grad. (laughs) Okay. That's probably wise, I think. But uh, yeah, I think that's true, though, that how can anyone process any information at all? It's not just a doctor problem. It's a it's yeah, a, this was, was this the story because I was talking about my doctor not being aware of mm-hmm, gender mm-hmm. stuff. That's what yeah, this, that's, this is what they're re- referring to. It let off. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, no, we can't. I mean, it's almost like it's like information has become like a food that the human metabolism cannot break down. It whatever, can't. Whatever. It can't. This, in it this, in yeah. this, in this quantity, it is it is literally impossible. And I think that the only way forward in terms of this this information overload is to recognize that there are limits to our own digestive capacities and to make changes accordingly, instead of pretending like we can read a New York times cover to cover and absorb all of it in a meaningful way. I mean, you just shouldn't read the article. I mean, I think this because I am a lowly college grad. Um, (laughs) But no, I don't think it has anything to do with that. I just like I actually take tremendous pleasure in reading a long article or reading a book. Book, yes. Um, Especially I mean, I wrote, an article. I, I wrote. I wrote about this on my Substack a long time ago. I think we we discussed it too um, about how I think that the way that we that way that we consume information makes no sense, given that most of us are not going to be able to absorb it anyway. So it's just this pastime that's actually just going in ear, one ear and out the other. We assume and we, you know, presume that we're being educated. Um, but there's only a little bit that, that we're keeping in anyway. So we should be much more deliberate about the information that we do consume. I, I think it's good to read books. I prefer reading books. I read a lot of books. I don't read the newspaper anymore. Like, I do yeah, not I mean, but you so like because I actually think even better than a, certainly with a lot of nonfiction books, even better than a nonfiction book is a really beautifully written and edited long article. Long form. Yeah, long. Yeah. Form. yeah, yeah. I think long form articles can be can do the job as well. Um, but but the key is to just to uh, aim for long uh, rather than short. Something that took a considerable amount of effort from the author to put together because so much of the news that we are consuming on the day-to-day basis will turn out to be wrong. It will never go corrected or the correction will happen and it will never reach us. So we don't yeah. even know the extent to which we're being misinformed. Um, long form is very different though, because long form just because of the the passing of time, 
things can get corrected and it is more likely to be true and more likely to be accurate and be you know the length itself leaves like imparts something within us that that will that will hopefully stay um yeah anyway i could go on about yeah. this but yeah I'm, okay. I, I, I'm very anti-news specifically like <laughs> news like, stop i'm anti-natalist you're anti-news I'm anti-news. Don't do it. Just You're don't. a little bit country. I'm a little bit rock and roll. Aw. Okay. We're going to end it there. Okay. Sounds good. That was a, that was you, didn't, a, you didn't get that reference. But I, that, I did. I did. It's you did? The, it's the, the, the siblings were super corny, right? <laughs> corny. What are they called? Um, no, I know this. Uh, <laughs> I know this. I know this. I know this. Um, if if this was a like multiple choice question i would get it right but i can't recall it i can't recall it but they're both they're they're both corny right like they are corny they're corny siblings yeah that's right that's That's right okay all right that's a great place to leave it (laughs) all right everyone thanks bye just remember there's a special place in hell for women who don't help each other.